0: The text we're looking at today is one in which uh, most Bible scholars and commentators consider to be the one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult to interpret when it comes to the, the uh, writings of the Apostle Paul. And you're going, I'm glad you're doing this today and not me. Uh, the reason is because of what Paul says in verse 3. He speaks of a man of lawlessness or a man of sin. And then in verse 7, which we won't get to this week, Paul speaks of one who now restrains it, uh, the one who restrains the man of lawlessness. Those uh, are very difficult things to interpret. And even though this passage presents us with challenges, and I'm grateful for Alex's prayer this morning, to, the Spirit of God to help me, uh, and Alex made, uh, he alluded to this in his prayer, we know from reading 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for reproof, uh, for correction, and training in righteousness. And because of that, we believe that every passage, even the difficult passages in the Word of God, are meant to edify the believer. They're meant to edify the church. Even the passage that we're looking at today, and the one we'll come back to after the break next week, we're going to get even more difficulty as we go through this passage, but even the difficult passages are made to edify us. And so with that said, let's pray this morning, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we come this morning, and we're grateful for Your grace toward us. We're grateful for the Gospel. We're grateful for Your Word. We get to study today, and uh, I pray this morning for the Spirit's help uh, to help me uh, in what is a very difficult passage. And uh, I pray, God, that uh, we would go into this study, um, not with our mind focused so much upon the difficulty, but the understanding that this is God's Word and it's meant for us to encourage us in our walk as believers today. So I pray, Father, You'll help me and You'll help those who listen this morning, that we'll go away from here, maybe not having solved all that we'd like to solve in this passage, but help us to understand the main focus of what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is pointing us to through the Apostle Paul and his writing this morning. Help us to see uh, the main thing this morning and yet to study the difficult things as well. So Father, we thank You for hearing us. And again, help us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. In chapter 1, if you'll remember, we saw Paul comfort uh, a suffering church. And in particular, we saw how Paul encouraged this church in chapter 1 by reminding them of the important truths that their hearts need to hear Uh, concerning God's justice and the return of Christ. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul talks about the justice of God, that it's coming one day. And he talked about how the justice will come when Jesus comes. And as we look at our text today, it's important for us to remember that this Thessalonian congregation was a a suffering congregation. Uh, They were enduring a great deal of persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And people who suffer can be at the same time people who are vulnerable, right? When we're suffering, we're going through trial and crisis and things are going on in our life, we can become people who are vulnerable. And that's what's going on with this church in Thessalonica and the believers there. In chapter 2, we come to what is really, I think, the heart of this letter. And now in chapters 1 and 3, Paul will deal with important issues. We've seen chapter 1 and chapter 3 is coming. But the issue in chapter 2 could very well be What brought about the writing of this letter in the first place? In chapter 2, Paul has a deep concern here. uh, That the Thessalonians get their thinking straight with regard to the second coming of Christ and what must happen before Jesus comes. So Paul's goal here in chapter 2 is that he wants to help the Thessalonian Christians experience peace and calm and stability and clear thinking. And you'll see these ideas come out as we go through He wants all Christians, not just the Thessalonians, the Thessalonican Christians, but us today. He wants all Christians to experience peace and calm and stability and clear thinking. He wants Christians to know that they don't need to get all shook up and troubled and anxious and worried and perplexed when crisis comes into the world or crisis comes into our individual lives. Now the situation with the Thessalonians is a little bit different than just... World crisis is specific to them and what's going on, but the issue they're dealing with that's causing them trouble is something that is applicable to all of us as believers. So the main idea of the passage today is this. What must happen before Jesus returns? What must happen before Jesus returns? Specifically, Paul says this, don't be deceived about the return of Christ. And we'll see this as we go. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. If you're wanting an outline, here's what we'll do in verses 1 and 2. Here we see a correction to doctrine. A correction to doctrine. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice that verse 1 indicates for us as to what this passage is about. It's about what? The second coming of Christ and the gathering of His people to Him. We're going to deal with some difficult issues all the way through this chapter, but Paul's point, what he's pointing at, the main idea, the thing he wants to focus on is the coming of Christ and the gathering of His people to Him. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, 4, excuse me, in verses 16 through 18, when we studied that particular book, 1 Thessalonians, we studied about this topic, did we not? The coming of Jesus and the gathering of His people to Him. It says there in those verses that, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And what's the next words? Therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. What we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4, the verses that I've read, is the final phase of the gospel. One day, Jesus will come for his people, both those who have died trusting in Jesus and those who are alive at the time of his coming. They'll be gathered together with Jesus, will be gathered to Jesus, and will spend eternity dwelling with him in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the final phase of the gospel. The return of Jesus is the hope of all believers. Sitting here today, If you're someone who's trusted in Christ, turned from your sin, heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, your hope today is in the return of Christ. That's what you're looking for, longing for, and waiting for. It's the hope for those who have heard the gospel. The gospel being that Jesus died and rose again from the dead to save people from their sin. It's the hope that those who have heard that good news have responded to that good news by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Those who have done that, your hope, your longing today is the return of Christ. That is what you're looking for as a believer. That is the That should be the great desire of our lives as believers. It's the final phase of the gospel. You see how important this is here concerning the return of Christ and the gathering of His people to him. It's the last phase of the gospel. If there's no return of Christ, or if people are distorting that, they're distorting what? The gospel. And when you distort the gospel, people get what? They get messed up in their head. They get shaken in mind. They get alarmed. So in verse 1, Paul indicates that the Thessalonian Christians still have questions about the coming of Christ. And they're gathering to him. If you remember... Paul went into Thessalonica, preached the gospel, people were saved, a church was started. Paul was there according to who you read and Bible scholars. Three to four weeks he was there teaching the Thessalonians and what happened to Paul. He gets run out of town. But Paul taught the people of God. So Paul in his response concerning the return of Jesus and the gathering of his people to him, is he's being pastoral in his response to them here. And while doing so, he also talks to them about some difficult things but notice that the precise nature of these difficult things is not the main concern that Paul has. He's going to talk about some things here, but he doesn't give precise details. And if you're like me, when you come to those passages, you're like, What? <clears throat> I wish there was more here so I could understand what was going on. The main concern is that these two things have to happen before Christians are gathered to Jesus. And that's what Paul's pointing out here. The main thing is clear in verse 1. The return of Jesus and the gathering of His people to Him. Again, even though we're going to deal with some difficult matters here, let's don't get lost in the forest for the trees, okay? We have a tendency sometimes, we want the minute details that we're not given and we miss the big picture of what's really being pointed out to us. Look at verse 2. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, this is key here, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul's concerned about something that's troubling these Thessalonians, the Thessalonian believers. He's concerned about something that's bothering them. They have been told, they have been told that the second coming of Jesus has already happened. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody has told these Thessalonian Christians that Jesus has come and you've missed it. And as a result, they're what? Troubled. Afraid. They're afraid today the, the Lord's come, they've missed it. They're troubled. They're perplexed. Put yourself in their shoes. What would be your response? Hopefully, in our day and time. Not that we're any smarter than Thessalonians, but if we've studied our Bibles and somebody come and told us that Jesus has already come, we shouldn't get perplexed or shaken. And that's the point I want to us, uh, for us to see today. Paul is concerned that they are shaken. They are troubled in mind. Somebody has come to them. Notice in response to this error that's been taught these people, Paul tells the believers, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind, Or alarmed. Someone's come. You get the picture. Someone has come in whatever manner they've come. And Paul gives us three of them. We'll talk about those. Someone has come to the Thessalonians and told them, Jesus has come and you've missed it. And Paul says, look, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. He says, we ask you. It wasn't just like Paul just walked up and said, look, I'm asking you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And the reason language we ask you has the idea of a strong appeal, a strong encouragement. We strongly appeal to you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind. If you weren't here during the assembly time this morning, Lynn showed us a little video and it was going through all the characters in the Bible showing their faults. And it got to Paul, and Paul was what? A guy with what? You remember? A short fuse? I think Paul is a little... Aggravated. I can't prove it, but I think he's a little aggravated. And I think we'll be able to see that as we go through here. It's not like he's just casually; he is, he is on them. He's concerned about them. And sometimes when God's people get alarmed and they get all messed up in their head, sometimes you got to do what? you got to get up in their space. And you got to say, look, you need to have your mind corrected. So don't be quickly shaken in your mind. Now that word quickly there is very important. It describes the effect that this false teaching had on these believers. Quickly has the idea of being hasty or soon, but the idea is ultimately that of easily, in the sense, too quickly, without appropriate thought or study. Let me say it again. Easily to the sense of too quickly, without appropriate thought or study. The Thessalonians needed to carefully reflect on the teachings that Paul had given them, and we'll see that in verse 5. That word quickly has this idea. Someone has come to them teaching this era, this doctrinal era, and instead of appropriately thinking and reflecting upon what they already know about the scriptures and studying it and meditating on that, what do they do? Hook, line, and sinker—they jump onto something that's false. And Paul is concerned here; he's a little aggravated. He says, Don't be quickly shaken in your mind. You—you you should have properly reflected on what you knew to be the truth about the word of God and meditated and studied on that. Instead, you've done just what you done the—you quickly jumped away from that and went to something else. He says, "Don't be quickly shaken in mind." If you'll notice there, he has the idea. Of the wind that shakes a tree, or an earthquake that shakes a building. How many of you have been in a tornado before, or, or seen the effects? The trees do what? They just they're they're, they're just, um, disturbed. They're shaking. They're going all around. You've seen the films on TV of earthquakes and how things are just shaking. That's the idea behind this word here. For the believer, it refers to them lacking a secure mind as a result, they're tossed here and there. He says, believers, you shouldn't be shaken. You shouldn't be just tossed around everywhere about this false doctrine. Then Notice he says, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed. This word alarmed here has the idea of a ship that is forced from its dock by a storm. These new Christians have been shaken loose from their mental docking. And Paul is saying to them, I don't want you to be troubled about these things. I don't want your faith to be unsettled by this false teaching. I want to reiterate this. Paul is pastoral, but yet he is concerned that when this false doctrine, this false teaching come, instead of reflecting and studying appropriately what they knew to be the truth, what did they do? They went after this false teaching. You see what Paul is saying? This is a deterrent to your minds being shaken and you being alarmed. And what, and what did they do? They didn't do that. And we'll see that here in verse 5. Notice the source of their being shaken and alarmed. There were three possible ways in which they might have been affected. Paul says, notice there, he says, not to be shaken in mind or alarmed either by what? A spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Paul is being specific to these believers by saying, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Listen, these same things, except for maybe the letter coming from Paul, can be something that happens in our day and time. Notice there it says, either by a spirit. It refers to a false prophet who supposedly, notice what I said there, supposedly, Receives divine revelation from God by the Spirit. Someone has come to these Christians and claimed to have a prophecy from the Holy Spirit that contradicts or confuses them about what Paul has already taught them. You ever watch these TV preachers sometime that claim to have a word from the Lord? They got this revelation from God? That's what was going on. This is one of the possibilities, this is one of the ways that they could have gotten this false teaching. Notice next, he says a spoken word. It refers to a sermon or teaching. Someone has been preaching or teaching that which contradicted what Paul had already taught them. Are you beginning to put the pieces together here? Paul has taught them already about these things, what is correct, but yet they have quickly flown away from these things and jumped onto something that is false. Then notice the last thing a letter. Seeming to be from us. Somebody had written them a letter claiming to be Paul telling them something, again, that was contradictory to what Paul had already taught them. Now, I don't want to beat the Thessalonians up, but I'm thinking, if Paul had already taught me the truth and I get this letter from Paul that's telling me something different, what would you think? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be quickly shaken in mind and jump on this false teaching. I would give proper meditation and thought to what I had already been taught to see that this contradicts that. So what you have here, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians was written about somewhere 50 A.D. So 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, somebody is putting forth unbiblical teaching about the second coming of Christ. Now... You're thinking, well, okay. Uh, false teaching must surely just be confined to this first century. And we we, we would never have to worry about that. Wrong. Uh, there have always been false teachings about the return of Jesus. There has always been. And I'm not going to exhaust those. And you're going, thank you for not telling us every case of it. But I'm going to give you a couple, okay? There's always been false teachings about the return of Christ. In 1533... And you're going, why are you going back so far? Think about church history. What was going on in the 1500's? The Reformation. People were trying to bring the church back away from uh, the Catholic church and reform the church under sound biblical doctrine. And it's a period of teaching, sound teaching. They're trying to reform the church and bring them back under the Scriptures. And in 1533, a man by the name of Melchior Hoffman, bless his heart, Melchior, an Anabaptist leader in Germany and in the Netherlands, he proclaimed in 1533 that that would be the return of Jesus. He's in the Reformation period. All this sound biblical teaching is going on, but you still have this one guy who thinks he is the prophet who has... He's going to proclaim that Jesus is going to return in that year. Well, we know that didn't happen, right? In 1914, Charles T. Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, first taught that in 1874, Jesus would return. He revised his teaching to the year 1914. Why did he do that? Because Jesus didn't come in 1874. And after that year passed... His successor, a guy by the name of Judge J.F. Rutherford, claimed that Jesus did in fact come on October the 1st, 1914, but He did so invisibly. He just came and we just missed, We didn't see Him. He was here and He came. Now you're laughing, but guess what? Who did I say this guy took over and what group did He lead? Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever had them knock on your door? And even in the time we live, and I need to be nice and careful here, but even in the time we live, every time there's a disturbance in the Middle East, what happens? All these prophecy preachers come out of the woodwork, and they bring out their charts that reach from one end of the stage to the other, and they preach in front of those big old charts. Every time something happens, here they come. Let me say this about prophecy. Prophecy is in the Bible. The purpose of prophecy is not for making charts, but it's to build character in the life of the believer. And that's what we see Paul emphasizing in both of these letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Prophecy, the return of Christ, and everything that's involved in that is to build character in your life as a Christian. It's to stir you in your faith, and give you a longing for the return of Christ. It's not about going off on these tangents about trying to figure out who this person is and when Jesus is going to come. That's not the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy is to build character in the life of the believer. So Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians concerning the return of Jesus and our being gathered to Him, he says, Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken in your mind because you've heard someone proclaiming that Jesus has already come and you've missed Him. Now I know some of us are sitting here going, those poor Thessalonians, how could they be so foolish? You would be surprised if someone shows up tomorrow and starts talking about Jesus coming, how many people, since you're Christians, will jump on the bandwagon. They'll be shaken and alarmed and moved away from what they've been taught. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here we see the reasons to not be deceived. (coughs) Look at verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way for or because that day will not come. And if you're one of those who underline, and if you don't, that's all right. Underline the word unless. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now everybody, if you've been looking ahead and reading ahead, you're going, I can't wait to see what the pastor does with this verse I I've been wanting to know all my life who this person is, and I'm going to find out in a few weeks. Um, Paul makes it clear that at least two specific events must take place before Jesus returns. What are they? Something referred to as the rebellion. Notice there's not a, an A in front of that. There's a V, a definite article. The rebellion, not a rebellion, but the rebellion and the unveiling of the man of lawlessness. Those two things must happen, he says, before Jesus will come. Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians, you can know that you've not missed that day, the day of the Lord, because the rebellion... And Some of you have translations that have falling away or apostasy. You can know that you've not missed that day. You can know that you've not missed that day because the rebellion has not happened, and this man of lawlessness or the man of sin has not been revealed. In other words, Paul's saying there's something that has to happen before the return of Jesus takes place, and since those things haven't happened, you don't need to worry that you've missed the return of Jesus. That sounds pretty simple, does it not? Notice the first thing that must take place before the return of Jesus happens. Look at verse 3. And you see that phrase, until the rebellion comes first. So, before Jesus comes, there's going to be the rebellion. What's going to be the first thing that happens before Jesus comes? The rebellion is going to come first. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't give us any details as to what this rebellion is going to be, does he? He just says there's one coming. Now, the majority of Bible scholars who are far smarter than I am debate if the rebellion here is an apostasy among those who once followed God or is it a worldwide rebellion against God which is it in other words the rebellion might refer to a falling away of meaning within the church the bible talks about that does it not first timothy 4 second timothy 3 and the book of jude talks about that or again the rebellion could refer to a worldwide rebellion against God and specifically civil order This rebellion could be one of two things. I, I think it could be either or, or. you know, It can be this falling away of people from God, or it could be a worldwide rebellion against God and against civil order. That's going to happen before Jesus comes. But the main thing to understand is this. Not what is it going to be or when is it going to be, but that must happen before Jesus comes. And Paul doesn't give us any details, does it? He just says, that's got to happen first. Notice the second thing that must take place before Jesus comes. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. At the same time that there's this rebellion, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Now, like many others before you and myself, you have the question, do you not? Who is the man of lawlessness? If you're like me, growing up in the church most of your life, you've heard all the stories and interpretations about who this person could be. For hundreds of years, Christians have worked hard to identify who this man is. And in most cases, what have they done? They've pointed to someone within their own time period, have they not? In most cases, they point to someone within their own time period. In the first century... Who, was the, who did they point to as the man of lawlessness? The Roman emperor. When Islam began to spread through the Roman world and going to Spain and North Africa and eventually into Europe, who did they say the man of lawlessness was? Muhammad. And by the way, I left this out. Uh, most people believe this man of lawlessness is, is synonymous with the Antichrist. So, uh, in the Middle Ages... Who did everybody point to as the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness? The Pope. It was always someone in the era in which they lived. They pointed to him. I remember growing up as a kid um, in church, not not being a believer at the time, but man, I heard all the stories about this has got to be the Antichrist. This guy here has got to be the Antichrist. I I remember specifically Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist. Now some of you young people sitting here going, who in the world is that? Some of y'all, raise your hand if you remember Henry Kissinger. Some of you older folks, you're going to be the only ones to raise your hand. I know. He was what? The Secretary of State? You know what the argument for him being the Antichrist was? One of the things of the Antichrist is he's going to lead the nation of Israel away from God. So in order to do that, he'd have to be a Jew. And Henry Kissinger's a Jew, so he must be the Antichrist. He's in a position to lead people away. You see, it's always somewhere in their time period, their era, that they look to. And you're sitting there going, all right, what do you think? Here's my answer. I have no earthly idea. (laughs) And you're like, oh man, you you let me down. Over many decades, many pages have been written as to whom this man might be, and we're not any closer to knowing who he is than we've any other time. And for that reason, I'm not going to speculate about who I think it is. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we simply just go back to the Word of God. That's what we do. Instead of trying to figure out the who, let's focus on the what. Look at what Paul spells out for us about this man. He tells us what we're looking for in this man of sin. Notice in verse 3, he's the man of lawlessness. We may assume from this statement that he's an individual person. It says he's what? A man And that he exemplifies a spirit of rebellion against God's law. Lawlessness. He's against law. He's against God and God's precepts and God's principles. He's against anything about God. He rebels against the law of God, the law of man. He'll be a person who's opposed to every sort of moral and civil, absolute. He'll be an anti-authority type person. He'll challenge the right of government to rule. He'll be opposed to religion in general. And listen, he'll be opposed to Christianity in particular. That's who this man is. Second, he's the son of destruction. Some of you have a translation that has the word perdition. You remember a guy named Judas? was referred to it as what? The son of perdition. The word perdition means what? Destruction. Judas was a man of destruction. So this man of lawlessness is a man of destruction. He is going to be ordained by God to eventually be destroyed. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Paul, I think, is letting us know that however frightening this may sound, and we're sitting here today, and this unnerves us a a little bit, does it not? Paul is letting us know he's a man man of destruction. Ultimately, his end will be what? God will destroy him. God is still in control. This man of lawlessness will not win. He will eventually lose. Third, in verse 4, it says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. He will exalt Himself over everything that is called to God. Everything. Over everything that is worshipped. Everything across cultures. Everything across the world. He's going to exalt Himself above that. In other words, He exalts Himself, listen carefully, above all religion. Now, there's this growing uh, mindset in our world today that religion... You, if you listen closely, you can hear this. Religion... People refer to it as evil. Doesn't matter what it is, they refer to it as religion as evil. You know why they do that? Because some people in some religions can't get along and they're always doing what? Fighting and killing one another. And people say, religion is evil. One of the ways you might hear this is some people say, I'm not against spirituality, I'm just against organized religion. That's the mindset that people have. That's the mindset... Of our time across all cultures. He will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He will exalt himself over Islam, over Christianity, over Judaism, over Hinduism, over Buddhism. To what extent will he do that? Notice what it says. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. He sets himself up in the place of God. He takes his seat in the temple of God, which may mean the church. Notice I said may mean the church. There's other possibilities, but I think it could mean that. It may mean the church. Since Paul does refer to the church as what? The temple of God. He may be some kind of worldwide church leader. Paul is saying here, there is one coming who's going against the law, he's going to be destined for destruction, and he'll put himself in the place of God. He says, that's the man, when all that happens, that's the man of lawlessness, and until he comes, Jesus is not going to come. So Paul does it, he says, don't be shaken or alarmed that Jesus has come, because this rebellion, this man of lawlessness has not come. Now Paul is pretty, he's not real specific, but he's telling these Thessalonians, based on what he's already taught them from the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus will not come until these things happen. Now if you're like me, I studied this week, and I got to the end of verse 4, and I'm going, what in the world? How do I take this and help my people understand? How do I apply this to my life? Because most of you are sitting here going, I'd never believe that if somebody came to me. I just wouldn't believe that. I'm hoping you wouldn't. But people can come to us with a lot of things as believers that can cause us to what? Lose our head. Here's the application in verse 5. How to prepare yourself to not be deceived. And That's also the outline. How to prepare yourself not to be deceived. Notice what Paul says. Do you not remember that when I was... Was still with you, I told you these things. Uh oh. How do you prepare? How do we prepare ourselves not to be deceived? Paul's telling. But Thessalonian Christians, he's telling us, remember what you have been taught. Paul says the best way to remember what to look out for and what to be on guard against is found where? Right here. Remember what you have been taught. Now, Paul wasn't holding up his Bible like I am and telling them that they didn't have that. They had the Old Testament Scriptures, probably in the scroll. But Paul is saying, remember what you've been taught. He says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul is saying, I haven't left you unarmed When I came to you, I taught you the Word of God. Look back to 1 Thessalonians with me at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul congratulates the Thessalonians here for receiving, notice what he says, what he taught them, not as the words of men, but for what it really was, the Word of God. God. So Paul says, you go back to the Word of God, Thessalonian Christians. Christians sitting in the congregation at Redbud Baptist Church today, you go back to the Word of God. Remember what you have been taught. That's how you're ready to be discerning when deception and false teaching comes your way. That's pretty simple, isn't it? This is what keeps you from losing your head. And quickly moving away to something else. This is the key, folks. This is the this is the key to us staying grounded in the truth, and not being moved away. The things that we've talked about today is one of the reasons. Here's here's my application, more practically for you. The things we've talked about today is one of the reasons you come to church every Sunday. One of the reasons. Okay. You come to church for other reasons. It's to fellowship, to edify, and to encourage one another. And why do we do that? Because the Bible says what? Don't forsake in the assembling of yourselves together. But this is one of the reasons you come to church on Sunday. Or why you should come to church on Sunday. I'm not going to be a legalistic pastor who says you're not a Christian if you don't come to church on Sunday. But I am a pastor who says you need to be here on Sunday. Because you need the fellowship of God's people. And not because I'm preaching, but because the Word of God is being opened and being taught. And Paul says you need the Word of God so you can remember and you're not falling away. And you read your Bibles and you pray and you study so that you'll not be deceived, so you'll not be taken away by false doctrine. Mormons. You know what denomination... Defects to the Mormon faith more than any other denomination in the United States or worldwide. Anybody want to guess? Southern Baptists. Oh, but we're people of the Word. We're people of the Bible. We have more people defect from Southern Baptists who go to Mormonism than any other denomination in the world. If you don't continue to study and stay occupied with the truth of Scripture, it can't protect you from false doctrine. The fact that the Thessalonian Christians were shaken in mind and alarmed was a result of failing to remember and to reflect on what they had already been taught. Remember that word quickly. They didn't give proper reflection and meditation upon the truth they had already been taught. Instead they just, they flew away from it. As a Christian, you need to go back to the Word of God, and you need to make sure. That the Word of God is what's anchoring and what's framing your thinking about all of life. All of your life. You you say, Pastor, the Word of God speaks to all of my life? Absolutely. Through the study of God's Word, you're to know and become anchored in the truth. The goal of reading and studying Scripture is that you become transformed by the truth through the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12 not shaken from that truth, and thus in a state of worry or disorder by all false teaching that may come along. What's the key to us not being quickly moved and our minds getting all messed up by false doctrine? This. Paul says, remember the truth that I've already taught you and if you meditate and focus upon the Word of God and it's part of your life, when something comes along, you'll say that's not what God's Word says. And can I just be simple? If you don't know what God's Word says, guess what? Hook, line, and sinker in a lot of cases. That's why Southern Baptists defect to Mormonism. It's because they don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the Word of God. And here's the second point of application, and we'll be done. Does everybody understand what the first point is of application? This is important to your life. Sunday morning, Monday through Saturday. Studying, reading. Now listen. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you study to, the, to the, the point of what your pastor does. Now, if you want to do that, that's, that's great. I study to the degree I study to help feed you on Sunday morning. I'm not saying you sit down and prepare a sermon every week. But I'm saying, can I be nice at the same time, probably mean? A three-minute devotion every day is not going to get it done. Okay? Second thing. Have your eyes fixed on the return of Jesus. Have your hearts longing and yearning for the return of Jesus. Live your life as a Christian, hoping and longing for the return of Jesus. But do so based on what? What the Word of God tells you about the return of Christ. And test all your teaching, not just the end times, on the Word of God. Let's pray.